Welcome to our line-by-line, line, verse by verse, in-depth study of the book of Acts. This is our 23rd session, and we've entitled it Saul's First Steps to Conversion. It may be that he is actually converted in the passage that we are in, but there is several sections that deal with the conversion of Saul whose name will be used as Paul later on. And so we have subtitled this, Paul Sees the Light. Because on the way to Damascus, he is knocked down by a bright light and he sees the light and Jesus appears to him. Now, Paul has two names, Paul and Saul. Despite what you will often hear taught, some will say that Saul's name was changed to Paul like Simon's name was changed to Peter. That's not true. Jesus gave Peter a new name. Paul was Paul and Saul all along. Saul is his Jewish name. And because his ministry was to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 13, it starts to use his Roman name, which what is Paul is. Saul is a regal name that's got royalty to it. It would be pronounced Shaul in Hebrew. And it speaks of Saul, the first king of Israel. Paul means little. Maybe he was just a little guy and their mom and dad gave him a, a Greek name, a Roman name, little. That's what he was called. And he will go by that starting in Acts 13, 9. Here's where it first calls him Saul or Paul. It says, then Saul, who is also called Paul. So there's not a new name added to him. Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. And from then on out, it calls him Paul. Probably again, because he was called to minister to the Gentiles, where Peter was called to minister, and James, the half-brother of Jesus, to those who were Jewish. Now, Saul, I, I, I shared about Saul being the, the, first, uh, the first king of the nation of Israel. Paul is an apostle set, sent to the Gentiles, and Peter is the apostle, at least that's what's mentioned, then sent to the Jews. Now, uh, Philippians 3, 4 through 8 talks about Paul. It says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, him being Jewish, if anyone thinks he may have more confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised on the eighth day the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. And I want you to note he knew what tribe he was from. There are no lost tribes of Israel. They returned from Assyria when those taken into Babylon also returned from Judea. And there, we, we have different tribes that are mentioned in the New Testament. And even today, there are ways that people can find out what tribe they are from. But he's of the stop, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning he had two Hebrew parents, concerning the law of Pharisee, at one point, Paul says he was a Pharisee of a Pharisee. So he was the Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Zeal, um, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is of the law, blameless. Now, who can say that? Righteousness as of the law, blameless. It means that he kept the law completely. And when he sinned, he made the appropriate sacrifices for the law. It didn't mean that he was perfect. It meant that he did all the steps that you had to do to make sure that he was blameless. Paul was the kind of guy that anything he did, he did to the nth degree. Do you guys know anybody like that? Whatever they get involved in, whatever they do, they just go all the way to the nth degree and that's what he did. But he says, but what things were gained to me, there I have counted loss for Christ. 
He says, all of those things that I had in Judaism that made me somebody, I count as a loss for Christ. Yet I indeed also count all loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now, what a statement to say. I might be a little more careful if I thought there were Jewish people here and I would say all of those things that I thought were something, I count them as garbage before Christ. But that's exactly what he's saying. Today in our Q&A, we had somebody ask about a Torah keeping group. There's a group of people that are, are talking to this gal about keeping the Torah. And I was able to talk about how we are not under the law. We have no obligation to keep the law. There are moral things we can learn from the law, but we don't keep them. And, and here Paul says they're rubbish that I might gain Christ. Now that's Paul's perspective on his conversion. He's about to be converted and that's his perspective. Now let's talk about call Paul's conversion as evidence for Christianity because we have that. That someone who is a complete enemy of the gospel, an enemy of Christ, and then they become an actual leader in the movement. This isn't just an enemy who became a believer. A lot of times you will have people who don't believe, who will begin to look for the evidence of God and they'll end up becoming Christians. Lee Strobel is one of those examples. He wrote the book, The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for Creation, The Case for Miracles. And he was a journalist at the Chicago Tribune. His wife got saved. He decided that he was going to figure this thing out. He was a skeptic for sure, thought it wouldn't take him too long to prove that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, ended up becoming a Christian himself and writing a case for faith, which is a tremendous book for looking into the evidence of, of Jesus. So you see people, Frank Morris is another one. He was a lawyer, I believe, um, who wrote Who Moved the Stone? He set out to disprove Christ. Um, Josh McDowell is another one who set out to disprove Christ and ended up writing a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, which has brought many people to the Lord because it shows that there is evidence for what we believe. We are, some of you might be Christians because you were born into a Christian family. But doesn't mean there's not evidence for Christianity and strong evidence. And I didn't become a Christian because I was born into a Christian family. I became a Christian because I realized I needed my sins forgiven and I wanted to know Christ and I wanted to be able to go to heaven. It might be more likely that someone would call themselves a Christian if they were born in the United States or call themselves a Muslim if they were born in Turkey. But that doesn't mean that the evidence for Islam is the same as the evidence for Christianity. The evidence for Christianity is much stronger and Paul becomes one of those where the evidence is very strong. You have an enemy of the gospel who converts and becomes a very effective leader in the church. And the time frame in which this happens is within the lifetime of individuals who when they heard Paul say in his letters, which are some of the earliest writings written before the gospels were Paul's letters, some of Paul's letters, not all of them, some of them, and when they heard him make a claim that he was an enemy of the gospel, they could have spoken up and his lie would have been shown right away. He was never an enemy of the gospel. He never persecuted the church. The fact that there was a heavy persecution led by Saul in the early church and then Saul ends up giving his life to Christ is an amazing work. Something had to happen to make that happen. We read about what that is here. 
And if nothing else, it is at least a check to make you say, I need to think about this more. If we have an enemy that becomes a believer and we have the brother of Christ who doesn't believe that he's a Christian, who becomes the leader of the church and doesn't believe he's the son of God. And I like what Frank Turek says at this point. He says, what would it take to make you believe that your brother was the Messiah? And James didn't believe it when before the resurrection. Then after the resurrection, James becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Those at the very least cause us to kind of set up and take a closer notice and say, maybe there's something worth looking into more here when it comes to the evidence of Jesus being the Christ. Now, he, came, he gave up being well-known in the leadership in uh, a Roman-sanctioned religion, Judaism. You could be Jewish and you didn't receive any flack from the Roman government because it was sanctioned. Christianity was not sanctioned by the Roman government, which means that there was a lot of persecution that came your way because it was not sanctioned. Now, Constantine in around 300 would eventually sanction Christianity under the Roman system. He did not make Christianity the state religion for Rome. Okay, those who say that are just misinformed, they, they need to look it up. Sometimes we just say things because we heard other people say things. And I'm been, I've been guilty of that before. I just don't want to be guilty of that again. So he, he, he sanctioned it along with other religions as well. But on, on during the life of Paul, that wasn't the case. So he turned away from a sanctioned religion, became part of a religion that wasn't sanctioned, which caused him to receive great persecution because that. He didn't do this for fame, for glory, for money, or for women which are the main reasons that people will make major changes in their lives. I'm going to make a major change in my life now because I'm going to be able to become famous. I'm going to be able to become rich. I'm going to get the attention of gals. I'm going to, there's going to be things that are going to be done in my life that are good. He didn't do it for any of those reasons. None of those things happened. But sacrificed all to leave Judaism and become a Christian and to join it as a leader, knowing that the very persecution that he brought was going to continue on with him. He also changed his entire religious practice from Judaism to Christianity, which is significant. Just think about someone that you know who is Jewish and try to get them to stop worshiping on Saturday and start to worship on Sunday. Try to get them to not follow a kosher diet. I'm thinking of people that I know in Israel. This last year, you think I would learn this by now? I don't know how many times I've been to Israel, but I started going in 1988. And there are dairy restaurants and there are meat restaurants. In the kosher diet, you cannot mix cheese and meat. So where you have meat, you will not have dairy. And where you, so you can't have a cheeseburger, it's not kosher. And where you have dairy, then you can't have meat. So me and my wife are in a square in Jerusalem and we're grabbing dinner and I don't want what she, she wants to go over to this dairy restaurant to eat. I don't even think about it being dairy. And I go over and I get a shawarma, which is what I eat when I'm in Jerusalem. It's like, I've been waiting to get there. It's usually the last stop and I'm like shawarmas all day long. So I go get a shawarma plate. I carry my shawarma plate back over into the dairy restaurant. Oblivious, okay? Completely oblivious. And so a guide from another group looks at me and said, this is all about you, isn't it? So I know now what he was saying. 
But I was clueless. I'm eating my shawarma. I said, I don't even know what this is. And he goes, it's obvious. And turned around and walked off. <laughs> he was like, it's obvious. You don't even know what this is. And by the time I finished my plate, it dawned on me. Oh, I'm in a dairy restaurant. To them, it's very important. Now, not only did he leave worshiping on Saturday to worship on Sunday, but he also left worshiping God through the Passover to taking communion, which talked about receiving the body and the blood of Jesus. Now, even though we believe it's not the literal body and blood of Jesus, because in Judaism, you can't drink blood. Okay, it's, it's against the law. And Peter had said, no unclean thing has ever passed my lips in Acts chapter 10. We're going to get there not next chapter, right? No unclean thing has ever passed my lips. So if he thought that the, the blood while he was taking communion literally turned into the blood of Christ when he drank it, he couldn't say that. And so he went from the Passover meal, which was a memorial meal, to taking the at least a symbolic body and blood of Jesus which would not have been an easy thing for, a, for a, someone who's Jewish to do. It's one of the reasons that Jews today who are religious, it's very hard for them to become Christians, a non-religious Jew, but the religious Jew is very hard. As I said, stopped worshiping on Saturday, worshiped on Sunday, left um, the restrictions of the kosher food for non-kosher foods because he just ate with the Galatians. So Paul made all of these radical changes and they are significant, especially significant in the culture they lived in. Now, Paul's testimony, we get several times in the book of Acts. We're not going to look at it all today. Um, this is the account of how he comes to Christ and was used by him. Our testimony is very important. Paul's testimony is fantastic. Okay. He gets knocked down by a bright light and then Jesus talks to him. The others heard the voice but couldn't understand it. So it was audible. Paul hears it and he hears Jesus. Now that's a testimony. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, in uh, Revelation 12, 11, and they overcame him, that Satan, by the blood of the lamb because our sins are forgiven and by the word of their testimony that they had a real relationship with Christ and they had a story as to how they became real Christians and they did not love their lives unto death, it says. Now, my testimony, I've never thought was very powerful. My testimony is like, I was baptized into the Methodist church when I was a baby. I went to church a lot. There were years where I had stars on every week of the year. So I didn't miss out of 52 weeks in a year. I didn't miss any. And then at 14 years old, 13 years old, really, my father passed away. And within a month of him passing away, I had a youth pastor ask me if, if I was going to heaven. I said, yes. He said, why? I said, because I believe in God. He said, well, the devil believes in God. I said, yeah. He goes, you going to heaven? No. Then it takes more than just believing God exists, doesn't it? And from there, he led me in inviting Christ into my life and beginning to live for him. And my life was radically transformed and changed. Now, that to me is a pretty boring testimony. And I've always thought that. I've always thought when people are giving their testimony and I stand up to give mine, well, I was born to a Methodist church, yeah, baptized as a baby. It's always a pretty boring testimony. In a, in a four square church that I went to, we had a staff evangelist on staff. And this guy played professional baseball. He was a martial black belt in, in a few different martial arts. 
He was driving a sports car and the car rolled over several times, almost killed him. He ended up from that experience giving his life to Christ and living for him. And he has all of these dramatic things that happened. And I remember hearing his testimony and going, I want a testimony like that. I want a testimony that really is powerful like that. But over the years, I've shared my testimony while preaching, much more than I just shared with you now, because I have where I actually walked away from Christ and came back to him and he came and got me and what he did to do that. You know what I find is that people responded to how powerful that testimony is. It doesn't seem powerful to me. There's no rollovers. It doesn't involve professional baseball players or karate experts at all. But your testimony is more powerful than you think. Look for opportunities to tell people how you came to Christ. There is power in that testimony. You overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. I also believe that, that we should share it with people that we want to see them come to Christ. It's an example of how you come to Christ when you give your testimony and what that salvation is. And Paul's gonna give his testimony several times. Now it's a dramatic testimony to be sure, but he is gonna give it several, several times. All right, so let's pick it up in Acts 9, 1 through 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters for him to the synagogue of Damascus, so that he might find any who were of the way, whether men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So the first thing that we see is he's still breathing threats. We were told earlier in the book of Acts that he wreaked havoc on the church in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know exactly what that Hebrew word is for wreaking havoc, or excuse me, Greek word it would be for wreaking havoc, but I imagine it would be pretty descriptive. He caused real problems so that people left Jerusalem, went to the cities of Judea and Samaria. And now he wants to pursue them to other places to be able to arrest them and put them in prison. I have three verses where Paul talks about this time in his life when he was persecuting the church. As near as we can tell with Paul, Paul went to Jerusalem to go to school under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a, um, was a Pharisee that taught in a Pharisee school and he became a Pharisee. We think that he left before the ministry of Jesus and then came back shortly after the ministry of Jesus. Maybe he returned to Tarshish, which is in modern day Turkey. Maybe he did uh, the work of a rabbi and a Pharisee there and then returned. We think he never saw Jesus because in Corinthians 15, when he's going over the list of people that saw him, he says, and then as to one born out of time, he appeared to me as well. So we know that he was in school younger in Jerusalem. We know also that he was here pretty soon after the, the resurrection. And as soon as he came in, Saul started problems. So in Acts 8, 3, this is the wreak havoc passage. And for, as for Saul, he made havoc on the church, entering every house. Notice how distinct that is, every house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. That's the persecution that caused the gospel to spread. Then in Acts 22, 3 and 4, Paul is now giving his testimony. And Paul says, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarshish of Cilicia, and brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel. In this city, that's Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel. 
according to the strictness of our fathers and was zealous towards God as you are today. I persecuted the way. We saw that referred to earlier. Early Christianity seems to be referred to as the way. We don't know if it was pejorative or not. Maybe they were making fun of it like Christians was pejorative at first. We kind of gladly took it. Little Jesuses, little Christ, they're Christians. And we were like, yeah, bring it on. We don't know if the way was pejorative, like they're part of the way. And we took it on or, 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 or didn't. We did Christianity for sure. It says, binding and delivering them into prison, both men and women. Now, in Acts 26, he's once again giving his testimony. This time, I believe it's before Agrippa. And he says, who was Herod Agrippa, one of the descendants of Herod the Great. He says, indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Thus, I also did in Jerusalem and many of the saints I shut up in prison, receiving authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them which means he had to be some kind of authority to be able to cast a vote, probably the Sanhedrin. And I punished them often in every synagogue. And this is a horrible part, compelling them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them. I persecuted them to foreign cities. So my question is, how do you compel someone to blaspheme? Compelling them to blaspheme. I guess it could be as much as if you blaspheme him, I'll let him go. It says that he, that he, what, what, what was the word that he used here? Uh, the synagogue, um, he said, I punish them. So he's punishing them. So it could be him punishing them to the degree that they would finally want it to stop and they would blaspheme. Maybe punish his wife and, until you blaspheme. I, I would take a lot more before I blaspheme, but they start doing something to my wife and who knows, you know? Children, maybe. Compelling Christians to blaspheme. No wonder Paul would say later on, I am the chief among sinners. He would talk about his unworthiness to be a part of Christ because of the things that he had done to the church. Paul believed what he was doing, he was doing for God. He thought he was doing it for the Lord. Some believe that what, you're, what you believe, as long as it's sincere, is good. You ever heard someone say, as long as you sincerely believe it, then you can go to heaven. It's all good if you sincerely believe it. But Paul sincerely believed it. But was it good for him to punish and compel people to blaspheme if he sincerely believed it? And, in, and that works nowhere else in culture, does it? If I sincerely believe I can fly, so I go to the tallest skyscraper I can find in Tucson, climb out on the edge and jump off, flapping my arms, no one's going to go, he sincerely believed that. He should have flown. They're going to go, idiot. He thought he could fly. Guess he learned otherwise. There's no other place I could go. I sincerely believed if I didn't have my gallbladder removed, I would be fine. And it killed me. I wouldn't be saying that if it killed me, but on you know, my dying bed, I sincerely believed if I didn't take it out, I'd be fine. You would say the doctors told you to take it out. Doesn't matter what you sincerely believe. So with faith, if you sincerely believe something, even though it is wrong, you will face the consequences of what you believe is wrong by believing that it is wrong. And that was Paul. He sincerely believed it. He thought he was doing something good for God. Now we go on in our text here where it says, then Saul still breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord. 
went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Then verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Now, I was telling this account in a message, and I talked about him being knocked off of a horse. Afterwards, somebody came up to me and said, where did you get that Paul was knocked off of a horse? And I said, well, I don't know. Um, let me look it up. So I went back to look it up. You know what I found? Never does it say he was knocked down from a horse. It doesn't even have, there's no, not even a word in the Greek language for falling from a horse. Because you might think, well, maybe it's hidden in the word fall. That it could be, this is a word that's used when you fall from a horse. There's not a word for falling from the horse. It's not a word for not being knocked off a horse. There's just no horse. This is, and I've been harping on this for a while, it's what we hear from the pulpit, we hear taught, and then we ourselves turn around and teach it. And this is something that we need to become very careful of as pastors. We want to make sure that we check everything before we go ahead and repeat it. Because something we make up and we're pretty sure it was true, that might go down the road for a long time. There are a lot of things that I taught as a younger pastor because I heard pastors teach them that today I know are not true and I don't want to do that anymore. It's the furthest thing away that I want to do. Now, it doesn't mean he wasn't knocked off a horse, right? Because it doesn't say he wasn't knocked off a horse, but it doesn't say he was. So we just want to stay in the confines of a passage. This is pretty nebulous. Whether he got knocked off of a horse or not, it doesn't matter. But sometimes... When you make up something about the Word of God that isn't there, you end up, this is a theological term, doing violence to the text. You end up adding something that you don't think is very important, but you end up changing the meaning of the text, and that's something that we as Christians don't want to do. We want to make sure we're covering what is in the pages of Scripture, and this is just one of those warnings because you're going you're gonna to hear it a lot, you're going to see it a lot. You're going to written, see it written down a lot. Instead, he just suddenly a uh, light shone around him. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, when you see the double name in the Bible, Martha, Martha, you are worried about many things. When you see the double name, it seems like there's an emphasis maybe on uh, a bit of a, a correction. That's just what it seems like. Simon, Simon, right? I don't know how many times he said that to Peter. Simon, Simon, Martha, Martha, Saul, Saul. So Saul is genuinely wanting to serve God, but instead he's persecuting Jesus after wanting to genuinely do that. And I see that even though this is a bit of a rebuke with the double name, I see it as almost a tenderness. Because when he finds out that Jesus is the person that he has been persecuting the church for, he's been persecuting the person of Jesus for Jesus. Because Paul believes he's serving God. He believes he's really serving God. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And so he's persecuting Jesus because he thinks he's doing things for God that he's supposed to be doing. And so he's bringing this correction. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I also like that when Christians are persecuted, 
it is Jesus being persecuted. It reminds me of what Jesus said. When men hate you, know they hated me first. And when men persecute you, they persecuted you. It's not you they hate, it's Christ they hate. And it's not you they're really persecuting, it is Christ they persecute. No wonder Paul later on talked about the privilege of being able to suffer for Christ. And when the disciples were beaten for preaching the gospel earlier in the book of Acts, I think it was chapter 5, maybe four, then they left rejoicing for the privilege of suffering for the sake of Christ. Because it wasn't them they were beating. It was Christ. And they were aligning themselves with Christ. Paul in Philippians said, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his sufferings. I, I don't know that I've ever said that with real conviction in my life. I hope that I truly can. Paul definitely suffered many, many things. So Jesus identifies with the persecution. In Acts 5, let me read to you the disciples and what happened to them when they said they, they, they counted it worthy to, to suffer shame for him. This is an open public flogging. And they agreed with him. This is uh, Acts 5, 40 and 41. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should speak no longer in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame in the name of Jesus. Because Jesus was there with them and they had been persecuting him. Now he said to him, who are you, Lord? Immediately, Paul responds with the word Lord. I've got to think a Pharisee doesn't use that word lightly. Something has shocked him and he has seen him. Now, I've got to go look at all of the accounts to see if it talks about him appearing here to him. He appeared to him at least in voice. And I'm not quite sure whether he appears in person. Paul does make reference to Christ as one born at a time appeared to me. We know that in Corinth, you know, when he's in Corinth, Paul wants to leave because it's been so hard, brutal, and he doesn't want any more persecution. And the Lord comes and stands by him in Corinth and encourages him to stay. In fact, Jesus says to him, go ahead and stay, Paul. No one else will hurt you here. He just had to kind of give him that little like, you've been hurt a lot for me, but you could go ahead and stay here because no one's going to hurt you here. If I were Paul, I might just go ahead and set up my tent forever in Corinth then. You said, no one's going to hurt me here ever again. So here's where I'm going to go ahead and stay for that reason. But notice who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, does anybody in here have the NIV Bible? Just out of curiosity. All right, a few hands. Um, ESV. Okay, a few more. So you'll notice that kicking against the goads isn't there, right? In your Bible. Now, the kicking against the goads isn't there because other Old Testament manuscripts don't have it there. So we got our Bible through manuscripts. We didn't get our Bible, 66 books with gold edges and ribbons hanging down, floating down from heaven with a spotlight on it, the Word of God. We got manuscripts. 
and thousands of Greek manuscripts and Coptic manuscripts and Latin manuscripts. We got manuscripts and none of them are the same. And so when people say, well, there's no error in the Bible, we go, well, if none of the manuscripts are the same, then how can we say that there's no error in Scripture? And I'll talk to you about what we mean and what theologians mean when they say that the Bible is inerrant. I think we need an explanation because we got our Bible through manuscripts. Now, it turns out that's the best way to get it because if there was one copy that was kept by somebody, the original, like when, 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 when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, there was an original. And that letter was kept all along by one person. Then somebody could have destroyed it. Somebody could have changed it. All they had to do was change one copy. But when the book of Corinthians was written and immediately it was copied by hundreds and even thousands of Christians, now if someone wants to change it, they have to change every single copy. It becomes impossible for them to change it. So God protected the word of God by having all of these manuscripts. However, not everyone that made a copy of the manuscript was inspired. They made mistakes. If I was copying a manuscript of the Bible in English, I'd make mistakes. I know that because I do my notes every week. And my wife, who is a writer and an editor, will edit my notes. And I'm, I'm out doing stuff and I hear her from back room say, I got questions. And I'll walk back and she goes, what do you mean by this? And I've like said from instead of for, and there's just all these weird sentence structure things. And the, the sad part is I wrote them, read them and reread them before I gave them to her. So I would make a mess of a manuscript. However, you could compare my manuscript to hundreds of other manuscripts. And now you can go, that guy doesn't write a very good manuscript. But this guy seems to have written a great manuscript because he agrees with all the other manuscripts more than any other. And this guy doesn't agree with manuscripts more than any other. So somewhere along the line, the manuscript evidence shows that this term, not kicking against the goads, was not in the text in Acts. Now, if you're hearing this for the first time, trust me, this hits you like, it's like someone just punches you in the gut. I'll never forget the first variant I found and it felt like the wind got taken out of me. And my pastor declared, that's a different account. And I went back and it's the same account. So I asked, how can I trust the Bible at all? I'm 16, 17 years old. How can I trust the Bible at all? Because I didn't know this. But once you learn how we got our Bible and you learn about manuscript evidence and you learn the strengths of it, it doesn't punch you in the gut anymore. So I just want you to know, you may be feeling really weird right now because you know, you thought the Bible floated down from heaven in ribbons and yeah, there it is. But now we learn that it got to us the way that Homer got to us, the way that any other ancient writing got to us. So did, did Jesus say to Paul that it is hard for you to kick against the goads? The answer is yes. And you say, well, how can you say that? Because later on in the book of Acts, when Paul is giving his testimony, Paul says, and he said to me, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And that is in the manuscripts. And so somewhere along the line, somebody took that statement, added it into a certain amount of manuscripts that made its way into the complete copy of the Old Testament that the King James and New King James is written from. That is why when it comes to portions being left in or out, the NIV, the ESV, the NASB are better at that. 
The New King James is not as good as that. That doesn't mean it's not a good version. The New King James Version of the Bible is one of my favorite versions for, for reasons I won't go into right now. I like the NASB better because it's constantly updated with the manuscripts, but I'm not going to start teaching from the NASB. After 38 years of teaching, I'm teaching the New King James Bible. That's what I'm doing, all right? But I will point out these things to you from time to time. And I want you to know, because when you get into school, your teacher's going to go, there's errors in the Bible. And you're going to go, no, there's not. I heard my pastor say there wasn't. And then your teacher's going to go, let me show something to you. And then, and then you learn about manuscript evidence. And then you're going, well, maybe that nothing that the preacher told me was true. So I want you to know how you got, how we got our Bible and how you can trust it and how come variants in scriptures are a good thing and that there are massive, there are, there are, there are um, insignificant variants and significant variants. And, and Bart Ehrman, who is no friend of Christianity and a New Testament scholar who will, will write and even lie about things to make Christianity look bad, Bart Ehrman says, that none of the variants in any of the manuscripts deal with any doctrine that is taught by the church. So the doctrines we receive, God has kept together. And that's why you hear me pray often, your word is inerrant in the truths that it teaches. It doesn't mean it's inerrant because we've got manuscript evidence that's out there and every single word jives with every other word because it doesn't. Now, I know teachers do this in, in A of U, oh yeah, U, U of A, A of U. They do it there. They do it at U of A. I know that because I was invited to speak to a class at the U of A. And I, I was invited to speak about the Bible. So I'm all ready to go speak about the Bible. And uh, when I get there, the professor says, this is a pastor, one of the uh, churches here in Tucson. And he's going to tell you about how many, um, what did he use? How many errors there are in the Bible. That's the word that he used. Not variants, errors. And I looked at him and I went up and I said, how, and I said to him, just out of curiosity, how many errors do you think there are? And the professor said, I don't know, there, there, you know, there's hundreds of them. And I said, well, that's wrong because there's thousands. And I had to go back to the basics and teach about manuscript evidence. I had like, you know, 35 minutes to be able to do it, to cover all of the basics of manuscript evidence for these kids, to show them why it's better to have manuscripts than it is to have a copy of the Bible that we can look at and go, every single word is the same. We've got every single word that is there. The Bible says God has preserved his word from generation to generation, and God has done that. Let's just pick it up a little bit more here. It's about time to wrap it up and I'm only going to get halfway through my sermon. So he said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. What was a goad? You guys know what a goad is? Hard for you to kick against the goads. I grew up in Albuquerque and there were goads out in the, in, in the high plain desert. There are these plants that grew goads on them. Hard for you to kick it. It wasn't hard to kick the goads, not for me. So a goad was either a metal spear or a wooden spear that was tied in place behind the hamstring of the oxen. So that if they got uppity when you were trying to get them to go one way or another, they would kick against the goads and would straighten them up pretty quick. They realized, I can't do this. And so you kept control of oxen that were uppity by putting goads on them. And so God had been putting goads, he'd been goading Paul quite literally. And it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And Paul would have known exactly what that meant. So he trembled 
And uh, so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now, that's not where I plan to quit tonight, but that is where I'm going to quit tonight. Lord, what do you want me to do? That sounds to me an awful lot like evidence for salvation. Lord, what do you want me to do? That's what we do when we're Christians, genuine Christians. I lead people in prayer all the time to commit their lives to the Lord and to invite Jesus in because John 1, 12 says, as many as receive him, he gives the right to become a child of God. But one of the evidences that you have genuinely received him is that you are now wanting to do what he said you would do. We talked about this last week when we saw the first convert. And so saying to him, Lord, what do you want me to do? That's evidence that you're saved. That's evidence that, 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 that real salvation has taken place. This may be the conversion moment for Paul. And we got a lot more to cover in this account of Paul and, and going into Damascus. And when he finally comes to the Lord, so much to learn about these early days of Paul giving his life to Christ. And I love that we're starting it from the very beginning. But listen, if you've never said to him, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now is the time to say it. Now is the time to say, you know, Lord, I invited you in. I might have begun to live for you, but I was more concerned about what I wanted to do. It was more about like, God, while I do what I want to do, will you come along and help me do this? That's never caught, taught in Christianity. That is the self-help Jesus that so many people teach that just isn't true. Invite Christ into your life and your life's going to get better. Well, yes, in certain ways, you're going to receive eternity, but maybe not right away. It may get worse before it gets better. It may get a lot worse before it gets better. Job said something like this. If he kills me tomorrow, I'll serve him today. That's genuine faith. If it means that I lose my life, I'll serve you and follow you. That each of us in here would be able to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now, if you happen to be here and you can't say that, if you're here and you go, well, I don't want to ask God sincerely what he wants me to do. See, it's got to be sincere, right? You got to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? It's got to be sincere. You tell me, I'll do it. But you're here today going, I'm not asking God what he wants me to do because I don't do my own thing. I got plans. And if I ask God what he wants me to do, I'm not going to be able to do my plans. Then I'll come back to where we were last week. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm not judging you because I can't do that. God sees the hearts and souls of men. I don't. I see the outward, which looks really good, by the way. But God sees the inward. I have no idea whether the inward looks good or not. So if you can't say to him, honestly, what do you want me to do? Then you've got to do what you've got to do tonight to get there. To say to him, what do you want me to do? Because God's looking for men and women who will stand up for him as a light, who will make a difference in this world, who will be used by him to see people come into the kingdom of God. Because Jesus said, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You're a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. And I hope you can honestly say to him, what do you want me to do? And I'll say it to him tonight, honestly, God, what do you want me to do? I'll do whatever. I made that commitment a long time ago when I was 19. No longer would I want God, but whatever you want. I'll make it again now. What do you want me to do? I'll do what you want me to do. I hope we can all say that. And I hope that's the evidence that you've really made a commitment to Christ. Because the Bible says, by this we know that we know him, 
that we keep his commandments. It's pretty straightforward. You want to know you know him? Some people say, well, you can't generally know if you're saved or not. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. Otherwise, the Bible wouldn't say, by this you know that you know him. It would say, by this you don't know whether you can know him or not. But by this you know that you know him. Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm ready. Speak to me. I'll listen. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to be able to go through a section of this passage, talk about Paul, where he came from, and about this moment on the Emmaus Road when he realizes that what he's been doing, thinking he was doing it for you, he hadn't been doing it for you at all. And Lord, even as he said, what do you want me to do? We want to say to you, what do you want us to do? And we say it honestly, Lord, not thinking we know what you're going to tell us, but saying, speak to us. What do you want us to do? We want to live and do the things you've called us to do. And so we pray your Holy Spirit would speak clearly to us now. And I pray for those who've never made a commitment to you tonight. I pray that they would respond, that they would be bold to respond to that love that you have in drawing them. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.